ready to live your best life, be stronger, and fall in love with yourself? It's possible, and it's inside you, but you need to unlock the power within. Welcome to Fearlessly Authentic with Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody used to be afraid to take risks. It took some stepping out of her comfort zone to get her there. Along with her guests and their stories, Jody will help you to live your best life ever. Now, here's your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. I'm your host, Jody Harrison Bauer. Recording in progress. And welcome to Fearlessly Authentic. I'm so excited to have you here today and to share my guest with you. I cannot wait to start talking to her and share all her knowledge, her journey, everything. Um, I couldn't put her book down. But before we get into the show, I just wanted to remind you that if you are new to the show, this is the place where we educate, empower, entertain you a bit and inspire you to live your most fearlessly authentic life. Because if we're not here to live in our truth and to be our genuine selves, I think to myself, what are we here for? You know, for so many years, I wasn't living my most authentic life. And it's always a struggle. We're going to talk about that today a little bit. It's always a struggle to step into that power, step into that truth, because we always have a little bit of fear of judgment and how we'll be received. Um, But it's just such an important thing to me because I did it for so many years. It wasn't until I was in my 40s that I started living somewhat fearlessly authentic. So please remember to also go and uh, rate, review, subscribe, leave us a five-star rating. You can find me at Jody Harrison Bauer on all social platforms. And if you want to check us out on YouTube with my beautiful guest here today, you can go to Jody Harrison Bauer on YouTube and find us there. So that is it. Ruth, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here, and I love that you referenced the book. I love that you dug into it, so I can't wait to dig in with you, Jody. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I had so many different emotions going through it. So let me just introduce you quickly to Ruth, and then I will introduce the book and everything. And it's just going to be a great conversation. Ruth Rathblot was born with a limb difference. In her compelling and intimate memoir, she recounts the exhausting and often lonely years she spent overachieving and trying to hide her disability before she learned to unhide. She takes us on a journey of self-discovery, discovering her difference, being taught to hide it, and ultimately finding self-acceptance and connection with others. Ruth is an expert on inclusion and diversity. She is a TEDx and inspirational speaker and an award-winning nonprofit leader. She was born, as I mentioned, with a limb difference and speaks to companies on issues of equity and belonging, the gifts of being unique, and the freedom of accepting your differences. Ruth, I mean, everything that you have done more and more, it's the journey was emotional for me to read. And I can't even imagine being the little girl that you were and trying to figure stuff out for yourself. So I want to start from telling you that I'm incredibly honored to have met you when we met and to have you on the show. Thank you. And I want to start at the beginning because I think that's a good place to start for everybody to understand you know, from the day you were born, let's start there. 
Sure. No. And I am so grateful to be here also. And I know when we met and you mentioned the idea of being fearlessly authentic. And I said, I just wrote a book exactly with that idea in mind, which is how do how do we live fearlessly authentic? Because to your point, there are so many ways that we get caught up in our own minds around the idea of fearing rejection, fearing judgment from others. And so, and it starts early often in our heads, right? Um, And so for me, I was, as I share in the book, born in the days before sonograms. And so when I showed up in, on June 26th, I, my parents weren't expecting the idea of a child born with a limb difference, missing my left hand. And, you know, so they were in shock. They were concerned. And I think what was lucky for them is in the, that hospital, there was a nurse who saw them and noticed and showed empathy and said, don't worry, it's going to be okay. You're going to take this little girl home. You're going to treat her as you would any other child. She's going to figure things out and she's going to be okay. And that mindset was super helpful to my parents because I think all parents worry about their kids, right? No matter what. I think when we have kids with disabilities, whether it be visible disabilities like mine or invisible disabilities, I think we parents worry just a little bit more in terms of, are they going to be okay? Are people going to accept them? Are they going to find love? Are they going to find work? Like, what's it going to be like? What's that path ahead? Because it's hard. And while I think they did an amazing job, and we'll get into that around the idea of encouraging me to try everything, there wasn't always the space to actually talk about how it felt challenging at times or what navigating it felt like as a little kid. Yeah. And, and going to your point about, you know, back then, and it wasn't that long ago, but like it was long enough that we didn't have this education. We didn't have social media. We didn't know who to talk to. It was word of mouth. And you mentioned that, you know, it's not like your parents could get on their laptops and Google, uh, what do we do with a child that, you know, was born like this, you know, what do we do? What do we do? There was nothing. And the doctors really, you know, doctors really didn't know either. And to think I was born in 1960. So to think, yes, you didn't know what, what, what you were going, what was going to come out of your body when you were pregnant. You know, my parents are saying, you mentioned this in your book, the name of her book is called single-handedly. Here it is. I love the name of it. And the thing that they would say is 10 fingers, 10 toes, right? And yeah, healthy. We have a healthy baby, girl or boy. Yeah. That was kind of the mantra. And anything that deviated from that was a surprise and a shock. And I think at that time, and it probably, it still happens, but I think sometimes the medical community um, wants to find solutions. And so Mm -hmm. they came up with a lot of ideas of what happened or might've happened. And, but yet it wasn't necessarily solving for, um, what happened and it wasn't helping out in terms of how to cope with it. Um, as I moved forward, cause, and they were, there was a definite discomfort in talking about it cause they didn't see it a lot. Right. So. And you mentioned that when your mom was pregnant with you, she took like a mild sedative of something. And this is something that your mom carried throughout her whole life, thinking that that was the reason her fault. Y- yes. Yes, which um, which is a really tough thing. I think parents do that anyway, right? Like, oh, I must have caused this, especially moms who totally. carry, carry to birth, um, is that space of I 
everything I eat, everything I do is having an impact on the baby. And there are some things that aren't impacting. And what I came to find, obviously through finding a community, and we'll get to that, but what I came to find is every single person who has this limb difference would have had to have done something similar at the exact time because right. that there are one in 3000 births that are, are limb different. And that okay. mine is called amniotic band syndrome where a protein wraps around and stops the growth of the hand. So yeah, she, no, she blamed herself for years. And unfortunately, Jody, she passed away blaming, continuing to blame mm. herself and thinking this was her fault. Um, not knowing there was a whole community of people out there that had the same experience or some, right. So they're, they're raising you as the best that they can trying to raise you at quote unquote normal. Uh, and you think, do you feel different? Do you feel any different or are they, do they make you feel like you're just like every other kid with 10 fingers and 10 toes? Like every other kid. I mean, I was encouraged to do dance recitals. I was encouraged to do gymnastics, encouraged to do, to ride a bike, to tie my shoes, like all the thing, the milestones that kids right. have, I was encouraged to do. I sometimes had to figure out how to do it differently. Like I say, share in the book, like I remember a very, and probably because my father's told me this story, but I remember learning how to tie your shoe, which is, mm. you know, kind of what you do in kindergarten. You learn, if not a little bit before, and he was trying to teach me with two hands and I couldn't get it. And so I had to figure out, I kind of pushed him aside, he says, and I had to just figure it out. And you know, I have spent my life just trying to figure out things because I don't have two hands. So I can't do the things that two-handed people do in the same way, but I always am up for the challenge of trying to figure it out. And I remember in the book that you mentioned that your parents did bring you to some type of community that they thought could help them and you, but it wasn't the right community. When or around how old were you? So I was just a baby when my mom, okay. the doctor, it was one of the solutions that the doctors gave her is to set her up with a disability group. And what she found when she got there was a lot of the kids had quote unquote, more severe disabilities. They weren't necessarily limb different. And so it, the range span and she didn't feel anything really in common at that moment. And that may have been how she perceived it. And also the nature of the disabilities that were there and what I needed and what I didn't. Um, I mean, they also, Jody, at one point gave me a prosthetic when I was a, a baby to learn how to crawl because mm -hmm. the doctor said, again, doctor solutions, they said, oh, well, she'll need this because she'll need to develop strength in her arm to crawl. Right. And what ended up happening is my whole forehead would get black and blue because as I tried to crawl as a baby, I kept hitting oh. my with this plastic, this hard plastic prosthetic. And they said, you know what? We're taking, my parents said, we're taking it off. Um, she's going to figure this out. And like most people, especially those with disabilities, we figure things out. We accommodate, yeah. try to, we try different things. And I did, I learned to crawl. I learned to walk. I got it all. Yeah. You do. You do seem to just figure it out. And what you mentioned throughout the whole book is that all of us are hiding something it may not be as obvious as a limb difference, but we're all hiding something. And, and it's when we stop hiding that we really step into our truth and we could really be ourselves. But that took you a while to do. When did you feel that you were different from the other kids? Because 
I have two daughters. One is was um, my oldest, six days late. And she would have had a really good, really, really cool birth date. It was six, seven, eight, nine, but she was born on six, 13, 89. I'm like, oh, of course you're late. You're still late for everything now. (laughs) Yeah, you ruined it. But she was super tiny, only 5'15", 19 inches long. And she's still tiny. She's only 4'10 right now. It wasn't the daughter who was with me. She's... She always thought she was a giant. She's all a five two because we're like little people sure. anyway. But my da- oldest daughter had very tiny hands, very tiny. And she had two um, pinkies that bent in. Mm. And her dad and I weren't sure if she was going to reach her potential growth. So we had her tested for hormones and so on. And we just, and we thought, okay, well, you know, she could be a tiny person. She might that's how she might develop. And we had to be mentally prepared to raise a child like that. But we, after we did the hormonal testing, because this was 1989, 1990, uh, they said she probably won't be any taller than 4'11". And we're like, okay, we'll take that. And the crooked thumbs, we'll take that. But my point is when she was in kindergarten, because you know, kids are really cruel because they're super honest and super curious. And you mentioned this. They said, why are your hands so small? Why do your pinkies? And so she was always, always, always self-conscious of it. And the doctor said, she'll grow out of it. And we're like, should we get it straightened? Because we worry, as you mentioned, as parents, even if you have the most normal child in the world, you still worry. So when did you realize that you were, were a little different? Yeah. I think that again, having the parents that I had, I I didn't see it as different for a long time. And I think there were probably really great kids. I think kids are, as to your point, they're honest and they're also just curious often. Yes. And sometimes it comes out as a little bit tough, but at least they move on pretty quickly. Yes. Yes. I would say, so I didn't have many difficult experiences that I recalled. It was when I started a new high school, which for so many of us, starting a new school, starting a new anything, new job, new house, new location, et cetera, is hard, right? Because we always wonder, like, am I going to fit in? Am I? Are people going to like me? Do I like people? And I think at 13, that feeling even gets more magnified, right? Like we think Such about a hard age. It's so hard. And so I was headed to this new high school and I got on to the yellow school bus to take me to school. And someone stared just a little bit too long at it when they were checking me out. And I remember just impulsively tucking my hand into my front left pocket, just thinking, Jody, that it would be for the bus ride, that it was just going to be so that nobody would notice I was different on the bus ride. And when I got to school, I thought, okay, I'll just keep it there for today. Like just, it didn't come out of my pocket because I just wanted to make friends. I wanted to, I didn't want to be different. And that day turned into that first week of school. It was still hiding. And that first week turned into the first year. Mm. And I think sometimes with hiding, what we do is a, the stories are so much worse in our head that if we share them out loud, we do face potential rejection, judgment, et cetera. So we've told ourselves a story that's so ingrained And then we almost beat ourselves up because we say, well, I'm going to be different this time. I'm going to, I told myself when I went back for my second year of high school, I was going to stop hiding it. Right. And I didn't. 
And then I went to college and I said, oh, I'm going, I'm going to be totally new there. No one's going to know me. I'm a fresh start. I'm going to do it without hiding. And I couldn't because I didn't know how. And so it, I just kept hiding it. And I lived that way for 25 years. My it hand- almost reminds me of like um, somebody who has an addiction of some sort, mm-hmm. like hiding it and right. And just like hiding a secret and it, what it does to your, your um, self-confidence and um, feelings of self-worth is, is really, really um, difficult. A hundred percent. And so there's that piece that you're referencing, which is the um, idea of what it does to you. Mm-hmm. It's also in terms of self-confidence, you're also not connecting fully with people because they're only right. seeing one side of you. They only get right. to know what you're showing them. And I equate it to oftentimes, it's a lot like lying. The more that you lie, the harder it is to stop lying. That's what it's similar to hiding. The more I kept hiding, the harder it was to stop hiding. And so I found really creative ways. I got really good at hiding so that people wouldn't know. I also put up a wall so that people wouldn't get to know me. Um, I, you know, had that, this kind of fortress around me. And so it doesn't allow you to not only connect with yourself, but connect with other people. Um, and that's the the damage of hiding for sure. I can't even imagine being in high school and hiding my hand, like one hand. I don't know how the hell you did it. Yeah, it's, it was definitely creative in terms of always having pockets in every outfit. And this went on again for 25 years, not just high school. It right. was wearing longer sleeves so you wouldn't see it. It was having book packs, book, you know, backpacks in right. front of and hiding it behind that so no one would see it. It was constantly worrying and forecasting next steps so as not to be discovered. So did it, you have it's exhausting and it was lonely. Did, yeah, very lonely. Did you have any friends that knew? I remember you said there was a girl group like in the middle school and some girl said we know we know all about you something like that. Yeah, that's even before I really started hiding it. They were, okay. I was kind of like, te- I was testing it out that I had some friends. It just got, you want to keep, I wanted to keep it so to me and not to anyone else. And, you know, again, high school is hard enough, right? Yeah. And wanting to feel fit in, wanting to feel the same, wanting to not be so different. Yeah, you hide things and we do it all the time. I did it. I mean, this was, my physical manifestation, but so many people hide things. I ran into a high school friend years later and I was telling her how hard it was my first two years. And she said, oh, well, it was hard for all of us. This, I was hiding. I didn't have friends the same way. I didn't find my group of people. And yet she was president of our class. She was the most popular. Like you don't know how people are feeling because we don't often talk about those things that we hide or how we're feeling insecure. Yeah, for sure. And did your parents, so your parents didn't really know that you were hiding anything. They were probably in their own world, just hoping you were okay. I think they were hoping I was okay. Yeah. I think they were hoping I was okay, but they started to notice that I was leaning more this way and not my posture wasn't straight. And I think that was the impetus to my understanding is that was the impetus to getting me a prosthetic, a cosmetic prosthetic that would look match my right hand. Okay. And they took me to get that. And 
I wore it about one day and somebody said, I remember showing up at high school with it and someone said, that is so weird and freaky. Mm. And I was so concerned about that reaction and I was concerned that it would fall off at some point. Like I didn't have control when I hid. And when we hide, we have control. We determine how it shows up. We decide like who gets to see it and who doesn't. When it was this random thing on my hand, I didn't know if somebody was going to go to shake it. Somebody was going to go to hold it and it would fall off. Yeah. I wasn't in control. So I ditched the prosthetic and stayed with my hiding. I, I remember in, um, in one of the chapters of the book, you mentioned that um, you took a dance class and your mom had you do this where you got dressed up. Was it like, um, uh, I can't think of ballroom dancing type of thing or what was it? It was ball. It was a combination of ballroom dancing and modern dance and kind of dance. But one of the requirements of being part of that group and it was the whole town was involved. It wasn't like, oh, my mom said, let me find something that's going to make her uncomfortable. Like this was right. one of the things that people in the town did. It was kind of this, um, it was a dance company. And one of the requirements was you had to wear, for girls, you had to wear white gloves. And that's really hard when you only have one hand. Right. <laughs> and so she contrapted, con- made a contraption of, stuffing the hand, the left hand with the fingers, with tissue and cotton balls, and then wrapping it around my, ha- my hand with rubber bands. Oh, that story just, when I, I read that, I was just like, oh, this poor girl. And not mad at your, I wasn't mad at your mom. I just, my heart just went out to both of you, really. My heart just really melted for both of you. Yeah, she tried it, to figure it out. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. And what's so funny, Jody, about that story is someone who read the book immediately after it came out said, wait, did I tell you that story? And I said, no, I said, that's, I have a picture of it in the book. And she said, because that's my exact same story that happened to me who, and she has a limb difference as well. And it was, it's not, it's you, this hiding part is universal and the mm-hmm. way we try to accommodate for hiding and making things work. She had the exact same story with the white glove. So did you realize, you know, you're, you go off to college and so you know that you're different, you know, you're hiding it, you know, that you don't feel good about it. You know, that you're not being your authentic self, even though the word authentic self probably never even came into your brain, but you knew that like, like something felt fake inside of you. Like you weren't, you weren't showing up as your real self. Like you couldn't, even the friends that you had, your close friends, maybe they knew about it, but there was still stuff you didn't share with them, I'm sure, right? Absolutely. And didn't want to share with them. And again, yeah, put up those walls and didn't want to see difference. Like I had also blinders on about difference. Like when I had a college friend who said, oh, there's a guy over there. He's playing pool with one hand. Do you want to talk to him? No way. Like I was not going to associate with that. I was not seen as that. I was not owning it at all. And it Did that bother you? Did that bother you that somebody thought, oh, well, you could go hang out with this other guy who has a limb difference too? Like, I think that back then, absolutely. Like today, yeah. I think it's super cool. But back then, yeah, like don't I don't want to be defined by my disability. I don't want anyone to know that that's part of me. Um, and how, I'm sure it was upsetting because that's how I remember it. Um, that yeah, I didn't want to be seen. Don't put me together with that person because they're different too. Um, or have a disability. And I think, you know, 
it wasn't because we, yeah, the word authentic wasn't used back then, but I thought I was being authentic because I was showing just the self. Right. And it was exhausting. It was lonely and it was, but I was making it work. Um, I only learned that it was not authentic when I started to try to get into dating relationships and realized, wait, I can't like, can't tell them. Like I can't, I'm not getting close enough to anyone really. And I wasn't sharing it that That I started Hard. Yeah, that must have been hard. So tell me a little bit, you know, you don't have to get really into it, but tell me a little bit about how you navigated around dating. And I know you were in an intimate relationship for like 10 years, I think it was. Um, but dating in high school, college, it was like, it's, it sounds like it was in your 20s or 30s, or maybe even 40s, that you had the relationship. And but before that, how did you navigate intimacy? Always hiding, always okay. And, um, I would, what was interesting, Jody is I would meet someone and my initial thought was I wanted them to know me, not know my hands, like not have to say, oh, well, she has that hand thing. I wanted them to see if they liked me and found me attractive. And then I would introduce them to the hand part. And it would be this big buildup of going on a few dates and then saying to them, have to tell you something about myself and the big buildup and needing to have a phone call about it and mm. make it this drama. And then I would literally say I was born with one hand and then hang up oh. and then wait for the phone call back to see if someone cared about it. Like, would they reject me and not ever call me? Would they, and then I would let the machine pick it up and have their message out okay. there. I mean, it was, it's so think about it now. And it's such an intense way of living. Like it, it was so much time spent on obsessing about it. I bet you can't believe that you did that. Like talk, telling the story right now. Well, for, and for so long, I think for that so is for so long, believing that really coming to believe that that's the way I was going to live. Like this was, I was going to be hiding for the rest of my life. I was, I did not believe at any point that I could really stop hiding because I had tried so many times on my own to stop hiding and I couldn't do it. I even, and it sounds easier said than done, right? Like, Oh, well, and I had friends who said, well, just don't hide it. Just don't hide it. But because I'd already built an image in my head of how bad it was in my mind, it became even, and again, it's a lot like lying. We build up an image in our head or something that we, we hide about ourselves. And Jody, I have heard after people read the book, the range of things that people are hiding, and it's not about disability only. No. Um, it's people hide their ages, they hide their weight, they hide their financial backgrounds, their family backgrounds, their education right. status, their voices. People change their voices because they're afraid that someone will re- reject them if they know where they came from or how, how educated mm-hmm. they are or what their family was like. Yeah. So we spend a lot of time in that space thinking creating this image in our head that it's awful. You know, what's weird is that, you know, you mentioned that um, your dad is Jewish, but he never shared that your mom was not. And, you know, he went, he sort of went out of his way, even used different names when he would make reservations and I'm Jewish and my last name didn't sound Jewish in my name. Well, I'm not married to a Jewish guy right now, but like even my ex-husband didn't have a very Jewish name because everybody's name was changed when they came here from Ellis Island. So, I never hid the fact that I was Jewish. I was always out there. So I think, you know, for me, 
uh, my roommate in college had never met a Jew before. <laughs> and this is 1979. And I thought, what? Like, do you think that like I have horns and a tail? Like, she's like, yeah, well, I kind of did. Like, I didn't know what to expect. Kind of, yeah, really backwards thinking. And she was from the East Coast. Like, anyway, like, really, there are no Jews, hard in, to believe. Yeah. no Jews in Massachusetts. Okay. Well, anyway, um, so from that time on, I, whenever I felt like nobody knew what a Jew was, I went to school in Boston. So like there were, there was the melting pot there and I would just come straight forward because my first name and my last name did not sound Jewish. So I, instead of hiding it, if I felt there was going to be, um, an anti-Semitic remark made, if I felt like I was around that type of energy, I would say I'm Jewish. So like, hold back on any comments because it wasn't like my name was, you know, Jody Goldstein or something like that, or something that what people would think is typically Jewish. So I kind of did the opposite. I, I, what I felt. Yeah. Yeah. I just came forward and threw it in their face because I didn't want to hear it. And I think um, it scared me. I was aware of it. I just didn't want to hear anything anti-Semitic. And I, I still, even in what year is this, 2023, I still, if I, if I get that feeling, I will throw it out there that, um, you've got a Jew in the room. Yeah. Hold, hold back or I'll leave. If you're going to say it, I'll leave. But I do, I, I throw that out there and I throw out my age out there too. Um, in case (laughs) somebody wants to say something about the age. Yeah. No, I think that, um, you know, it's interesting somebody sent me a clip that Deborah Messing was talking about her Judaism and how mm-hmm. she hid it for so many years. And she hid it as a child because of the reaction that people would have about right. Jewish people and Jews. And so, but it was interesting, again, it just reiterated the space around hiding, like that so many right. of us, it's, again, I use my hand, Jody, as a tool in to talk about it, right? Because I can say, here's what I did. Here's how I did it what are you hiding? Like, because most of us are hiding something. So what are you hiding? What is it that's about you? I mean, I even, and you're right around the, when you start to be named dates around things, because even in 2023, I was having a conversation with someone who shared about being a manager to someone who was not out and didn't feel comfortable mm-hmm. as a lesbian at work because she wouldn't show her partner. She wouldn't show, she wouldn't show up at the happy hour. She wouldn't do things. This is 2023. And we're still struggling with this. Like, how do we create space so that people feel safe to unhide the things that are holding them back? Not to create moments of, you know, like a Dr. Phil show or a Jerry Springer show. Sure. Like, not, That's not the goal here. The goal is how do you feel? How do you feel safe? So it's not holding you back and occupying so much time and concern about that someone's going to reject you or judge you. And what's the, what's the place to unhide? How do we share that? So was the pivotal point for you when you were working as an intern in the law firm where, you know, can you share that story? Cause that was really powerful. Yeah. Um, and I will say that was a definite pivotal moment in my professional mm. career um, in terms of, I had a job when I was 20 at a law firm. And my job that summer was to showcase the evolution of a laundry detergent box. And while so 
probably not exciting to some people. I was this high achieving 20 year old who wanted my own project. I was excited that that I got assigned something. I could do it. I could excel at it. And about three weeks into that internship, the senior partner on the case called me into his office. And I was super excited because my fellow interns weren't getting called in and getting noticed by their senior partners. So I got myself in there and he didn't ask me to sit down. And instead, he pointed to this pile of my work, these crudely cut copies, and he asked me if I ever went to kindergarten. Mm. And he said, because if you had gone to kindergarten, you would have learned how to use scissors. Now I was, yeah, I was 20 years old. So I did go to kindergarten. I did know how to use scissors, but what I was trying to do in that internship, because I was hiding is I was trying to cut out these box tops with one hand. And if you've ever tried to cut a piece of paper with one hand and I, I asked her, it it goes all around and you come up with jagged edges. It looks horrible. And so there was no way that I was going to tell him what was happening no way. Cause I was not a safe place. I didn't feel, but he didn't, mm. in fairness, he didn't know about my hands. Cause I was hiding. Right. Right. There were things that I speak about now when I talk to companies about how do we create spaces? He didn't know. And he was focused on my performance. And he was focused on my productivity and he kind of forgot the person person side. But so instead what I did is I used that creative resourceful angle that I had done my whole life. And I said, okay, I'm going to get those huge law books that I see all around. I'm going to put them on top of this piece of paper and I'm going to cut. That's going to hold the paper in place. I'm going to go down and find this basement where they sent me to go get files one time and nobody was ever down there. So I was like, I'm going to use that because no one's ever here and I can be operating with two hands and I'm going to stay later than my fellow interns. And yeah, I missed out on their happy hours and their, you know, the fun, but I could stay late and no one would be around. And I, finished that internship with high kudos, ex- excellent marks. And two things happened. One is I was exhausted because I, it wasn't fun to be doing all of this to make up work. I mean, mm-hmm. and the work wasn't as productive as it could have been. And the second is I vowed to myself that in a professional setting, I never wanted to feel like that again. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to feel like I had to so overachieve. Like I was already an overachiever, but this was over the top and it was exhausting. So I told myself, I will, I will stop hiding in a work setting. And I did for the most part, except I wasn't really sharing my story out either. So what happened? So you graduate from college, you go off into the world. And when, when was the aha moment? Was it in the grocery store, CVS or something where you met the woman who um, was missing an arm? No, it was before that, luckily. Okay. Because um, I had gotten so tired of being alone and not mm-hmm. building relationships and wondered why that I sought out therapy. And I think therapy is one of the best things. And I think about your listeners who may be thinking about how to live. Yeah, I wrote that down. I meant to ask you, did you ever go to therapy? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think therapy, I was blessed with an amazing therapist and I've tried a number of them. And so sometimes it's about fit and sometimes mm-hmm. it's okay to say this person isn't my fit. And all, and sometimes you find someone really good. Yeah. And I was talking to him about it and we were talking through different aspects of my life, like talking to my father about that piece. Um, and at one point 
I was starting to date someone and I realized that I couldn't, it was going to be the same cycle of me telling them, then not believing that they wouldn't care about it and then breaking up with them and ending it. And instead what I did this time is I chose to invite them in and allow them to get to know me, get to know my hands slowly, but surely that person actually showed me Jody, how to look at my hand, how to touch it, how to actually take care of it. I mean, there were winters that I got frostbite because I never knew how to actually take care of it and make sure it was warm and it, the and the blood was flowing through it. Um, so they taught me how to love that part of myself that I deemed unlovable for so long. And I had tried to do it single-handedly my whole life. And it was about inviting someone in to show me how to love my part, myself. That was the, the catalyst to unhiding. And that was the relationship that you got involved in for a long time. It was. And it was a gentle way. And I share with people now, I'm like, that's really one of the first steps. There's four steps to unhiding. The first is acknowledging it. And the second step is inviting someone in to share it with just one trusted person, whether for me, it was someone that I was dating to, it could be a manager. It could be someone, an HR leader. It could be a friend. Mm -hmm. Just let someone in and invite them in make that choice so that you can start on the path because then that changes the way you start to see yourself and it allows for you to see others with differences and accept them and let others in. Um, And then you can start. The third step is about building community. And that's when I met the woman with one arm who randomly shared with me as I, because I started to then seek out people who had disabilities and differences. Because you felt more confident, right? Because you started loving your, your hand and you're like, I'm giving this hand so much love. You felt more confident opening up your heart and sharing. And associating with people who also had disabilities and differences and starting to see it, like taking the blinders off and actually craving, looking for it. And this woman happened to be, yeah, in a Dwayne Reed. And she said, well, there's a whole group of people uh, called the Lucky Finn Project. And I didn't, Jody. I was like, is this the Wounded Warrior Project? Is this Lucky Charms cereal? I couldn't. (laughs) I remember you said Lucky Charms. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what she's talking about. And I went, rushed home. And at that time, there were over 30,000 people involved in that organization online. Wow. And now there's over 75,000 people who across the world connect with limb difference in some way, whether they're a person with a limb difference or a family member, it's this whole global community. And I had spent up until that point years thinking I was the only one and, and thinking that A, I invented hiding, that I was dealing with a limb difference. Nobody else really could have my situation. And yet I found out there was this whole shared experience group and it was super powerful to know I wasn't alone anymore. And that's the power of the internet and group. Do you believe, I think you say this in the book, that you do, be- you do believe that things happen for a reason. And it sounds to me that after you opened up your heart, allowed yourself to be vulnerable, shared your story knowing that the person at the other end that you were sharing it with was going to be compassionate, was going to be empathetic. Um, That now, you know, when you start, you might secretly be manifesting something, but suddenly everywhere you go, you see people. It starts with, 
Yeah. Right. Right. And I truly, when I read that in your book, I'm like, that woman showed up in her life for a reason. Yeah. And what I didn't say in that book, which is interesting is the day before, because then you, you have, there's so many things that start to show up that it almost becomes, wow. Yeah. is that the day before I was in Central Park and I see a guy running toward me with one arm. And I had just started on this journey of wanting to talk about it and think about it in different ways. And he created a website called Stuff People Do With One Hand, thinking about military vets who come back with amputations. Right. And his friends were asking, well, how do you do everything? Because you were born with one hand. How do you do everything? Show us. And then the next day, this woman shows up in my life. So I absolutely believe that the universe does give us what we need when we need it. And it's about us taking it and saying, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, and then it's a little bit like the breadcrumbs, like you start to follow breadcrumbs. Totally. I felt like then you just found your footing and you yeah. were just like, zoom. Now, how old were you when you finally felt like you could start standing in your truth and, sh and unhiding. It's only been over the last few years. Um, and wow. I'm going to be 54 next week. So it's only over the last few years that I've really started. I think doing the Ted talk was definitely therapeutic in terms of you were amazing. Amazing. Your story was so, I mean, your story is so powerful, but you, the way you presented it was beautiful. Thank you. And I think writing the book just adds more catharsis and more clarity and then mm -hmm. starting to own it. Yeah. So people starting to understand it because it's not that I want to be known as somebody with one hand. It's that I want people to acknowledge it's part of me. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I was in a work situation and I definitely talk about this in the book is I was in a work situation where we were talking about diversity and leadership and this is when I realized I wasn't sharing it with everyone mm. it is I wasn't hiding it anymore. Like I wasn't physically hiding it, but we were talking about diversity. And I said, well, do you see me as diverse? And the answer back was, well, you're a woman. And I said, okay, that's a lens of diversity. That's gender. Sure. What about my disability? And that answer back was, oh, well, we don't see you like that. And I didn't know what see like that really meant. I mean, I could mm -hmm. kind of put it together, but I wanted it to be acknowledged as part of me because it was a, I've had different experiences. I've had different perspectives on life. And that to me is what defines diversity is how do we see the world in a different way? How have we had different experiences that either limit us or that propel us? And so as I started digging in, I realized I could be really mad at that conversation, but I had to look at myself and say, well, what are you sharing about your journey and what have you not shared? And I started to reach out to my corporate partners and ask them, how do you, how do you, how are you defining diversity internally? Are you including disability? And many weren't, and many still are slow to getting to really a comprehensive definition of diversity, but they're getting there and including disability, both the visible and the invisible because Jody disability is the largest minority group there is. And it cuts across all lenses of diversity. And each of us in our lifetime will be impacted by diverse, by disability at some point, whether we're born with it, whether we acquire a disability, or we take care of somebody with a disability. So it's actually a conversation that impacts us all and that we all need to be involved in. Um, but that was the moment that I realized, wow, I wasn't totally owning my disability. I could be talking about it 
but I wasn't toss sharing it out. That's um, a, such a great point because so many of us begin to acknowledge things, but don't share it. Now we have this opportunity on all these social media platforms to share. So as you became more comfortable in sharing yourself and fighting for inclusivity to be recognized if I if I'm saying this right, as somebody with a disability, right? Because you were like, "Hey, um, hello, look at me," um, and it wasn't about, "Hey, look at me." It was like, "Hey, like we all need to be included." And you you mentioned all the different all the different disabilities. It's not just, you know, I had a woman on on the show a couple of months ago um, who's in a wheelchair, and she shared her story because it's a long story, but. Um, about her not acknowledging that she was in a wheelchair from a car accident. And as soon as she became part of that community, she started speaking up and sharing her story more. So from that point on, Ruth, you went like wildfire. You were like, I'm sharing my story. How did that feel? How are you received? What can people do to, to do what you did and not hide for most of their life? Yeah. No, it's, it's a really good question. And I see it in kind of in three parts. One is I think, yeah, I desired so much to feel included because I had felt so much of my time I had excluded myself. So I wanted to feel included. So this was really important for me um, in terms of broadening and expanding the definition of diversity. That was kind of that first layer. I think the second part that you talked about too is, yeah, disability is all encompassing because it talks, it's visible like mine or the woman that you interviewed in a wheelchair. There's the visible part and there's the invisible disabilities like mental health and neurodiversity that need to be included in these conversations because it's a big part of our population. And I think as I started, the third part is as I started getting comfortable with myself, it opened up the places that people then could share where they had felt like they had to fit in or hide part of themselves. And so it started this kind of chain reaction is, and I do, I talk about it all the time. I mean, I got on a plane a few weeks ago and, you know, the normal chit chat of, oh, what do you do? How are, what, how are you? Where are you going? All that. I talked to them about what these couple about what I did and immediately the man's head went down and I said, what's going on? And he you said, said yeah. And I said, what, what's going on? And he said, oh, well, I dropped out of high school and I never went to college and I don't tell anyone that I'm hiding that because I'm so afraid that if people found out, they won't think I'm smart enough. They won't think I'll be a good business partner. They won't think that I am able. And so they'll judge me. And so again, hiding is so, and sometimes it's so ingrained in us, it becomes our story. Like, oh, right. well, I'm not sure that he said the most uncomfortable conversations he goes through are, oh my God, weren't, wasn't college the best four years of your life? And where are your kids going to college? And he said, I just want to leave the room. Mm -hmm. And that's the trouble with hiding is then we're not really connecting with people because unhiding it's the key to connection. Unhiding is the key to connection. And right. so as I'm on this journey, it unlocks and people's Jody, when I tell you people's shoulders drop, they exhale and they're like, Oh my God, this is what I'm hiding. And it's not, it's you, you find out you're not alone. Um, and that it feels good because you let someone in, but it takes so much courage to share. So how do you, how do you suggest somebody starts sharing? Yep. 
I think that it is, it's been interesting. Um, there are, I've created a framework. There are four steps. And the first is acknowledging it, owning it. Because again, it can be something that you've kind of just lived your life accepting this part about you. And you think, but where is it holding you back? Like asking yourself to identify where are the things in your life that are you can acknowledge and identify as holding you back or not connecting fully with someone or feeling like you had to fit in when sometimes you just wanted to be yourself. Right. So that's the first step. The second is find someone in your life that you can invite in. Find that person to your point who's kind and curious and has shows empathy that you can invite in. Even if it's just one person, that's one where it's person, right. Then start to build out the community. That's the power of groups. And it's also the power of the internet that we have is there's a group for everything. There are people who are out there that you're not alone. There are shared experiences out there. So building that community. And then the fourth step is sharing out your story. And it doesn't have to be like, I'm doing it, going on podcasts and talking about it or writing a book. It can be just starting with a small group of of your friends to share your story of where you felt like you had to fit in, where you've been challenged. And what that does and allows for is then someone else to say, wait, what am I hiding? And then that becomes, it becomes like a flywheel or a loop where I share out what I'm storing. And hopefully one of your listeners says, wow, what am I hiding? And then that allows them to, to not, to not hold back, but to thrive. Right. You know, and, and, and using that word thrive. And I think all four of those things are so important. The first step is always, you know, even myself, as I started sharing things, on social media about myself and just wasn't like, oh, this is Jody just wearing a pretty dress and showing showing off her figure or whatever it was because I was kind of my daughter encouraged me like show more of yourself, mom, be more of yourself. And you know, even at that networking event that we went to where we met, um meeting people, letting them know who you really are because people don't really know us that well. But when you're there in front of them, like I would have, I'm so grateful that I met you and that you came over to introduce yourself to me. And um, it's, it's scary, but it's so, um, it's so helpful to yourself and then to all the people out there. Like you said, there's so many, there might be just one person listening right now who decides, you know what? I'm going to join that group. I'm going to get a therapist. I'm going to share this story with my best friend, or I'm going to start, I'm going to stop hiding. Just start journaling, like find a space or meditating, like find a space where it feels safe to start to acknowledge that part. Because I think, and the part that we didn't even get into, because that, and how, why I felt it resonated so much with what you were sharing is even the messages we get externally about our body, right? That impact how we show up. Like I hid my hiding wasn't just only because, oh, well, this seems different about me. And maybe that kid stared a little too long on the bus. Think about magazine covers and media and how beauty is displayed, right? Like I never yeah. saw myself represented. Um, and it's only lately that I applaud things like British Vogue who are putting people with disabilities on the cover or the way that we show different body sizes and shapes on different covers and how we portray people in media. Um, right. And so- I also think that hiding is a, is comfortable for us because we allow ourselves to do that, but it also makes it comfortable for other people. Like, so they don't have to deal with body image things of somebody else that they don't have to look at and say, oh, I'm uncomfortable. We make it comfortable for them when we hide. 
And we, but we, yet we challenge the challenge is how do we feel less alone? Because so many of us are hiding in this space. Yeah. And I think so many uh, people do hide because they think that it, and I think this goes across the board, they hide because they want to make other people feel more comfortable. That's something I had, I've had to deal with is just dimming my light, but hide more. So the other people around me feel brighter, you know? So it's all, like you said, at the beginning of the show, all different ways that we hide. So if somebody is looking for a community that supports being different in any way with a disability or in any way, not physical necessarily, inward, outward, where do you suggest they first go? I think they Google, they Google what they're hiding. Just put in the search term, Google it. Um, and if they have trouble with it, Jody, go to my website. And like, there are places, there's a place to also share your story about what you're hiding. Um, and then there are resources around difference because that's what we're really talking about here is how do we understand our differences and how do we connect with them so we can connect with others. And one of the things that you mentioned, I know we only have a few minutes left was about the sharing the story. But one thing I wrote down um, of the many things, good leaders, as you meant, you were referring back to the attorney that you work, were working for, good leaders show vulnerability, which allow others to feel safe, to have that safe space. And I think that's something that is really important for anybody who's in a leadership position to understand that they must be vulnerable. Especially if you're requiring your teams to be vulnerable. Like we ask a lot of times for people yeah. to show up as their authentic self, and we don't always create the space or model that for them. And it's still, it's a two-way street because if a leader's willing to do that and go there, then the staff and the employees need to meet them also and be ready for that those conversations. I can't believe the time is going by so fast, Ruth. I just can't even believe this. But I have one last question to ask you. What does it mean for you to live a fearlessly authentic life? It's such a good question. It's absolutely about unhiding because unhiding is about showing your true self. It's about showing up so that you feel brave, that you feel like you don't have to hide so that someone rejects you or judges you. It's actually you getting comfortable with yourself and acceptance. It's about self-acceptance and it's about belonging. And so that's what unfitting is for me. And that's what living fearlessly, authentically means. I love that. Thank you so much. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Sure. There's a number of ways. They can visit my website, ruthrathblot.com. I'm also super active, Jody, on LinkedIn and create conversations around unhiding and hiding and disability and difference and diversity there and also on Instagram. So I'm on social media and I would love to have your listeners engage with me and so that we build out together this community of unhiding. I know, me too. Thank you so, so much for being vulnerable today, for sharing your story. Everybody, please go out and buy this book single-handedly um, by Ruth Rathblot. It is such a great book and I learned so much about you and, um, and about you know, more about myself. It, it made me really think and um, look inward. So thank you so much for opening up your heart and sharing your story. I learned so much and thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for giving the message amplification. Thank you for amplifying this and, and continuing to build out authenticity and it's best. Yeah. It's 
Thank you. And everybody, thank you for listening this week to Fearlessly Authentic. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. And until next week, go live your most fearlessly authentic week. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you for tuning in this week to Fearlessly Authentic. Please listen again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition with your host, Jody Harrison Bauer, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and unlock the keys to a more powerful you.